Until you've been disconnected from everything and everybody you love, you don't realize how much they love you. You don't realize how much you matter and make a difference in their lives being who you are instead of who you work as. And you certainly don't realize how precious time is. You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Powerful stuff there. What you just heard at the open was my guest today talking about his experience and the hard lessons he learned serving five and a half years in prison. Hey everyone, I'm Eric Rogel, and this is Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can find us at evergreenpodcast.com. Now, this is an incredible story you're about to hear. It's told by a man whose journey to finding himself as a man, to finding out who he truly is, took place in a prison cell during what he calls his adult timeout. Now, to understand how powerful this is, you have to understand the man telling the story. So my guest today is Dr. Scott Becker, or I should say former doctor, because Scott had his medical license taken when he was convicted of money laundering and conspiracy to distribute drugs in 2014. Now, understand, Becker was not a hardened criminal at the time. He wasn't living a life of crime. He was a pediatrician who had lived what most would consider an ideal life. See, Becker had never been in trouble with the law, never had any big struggles or family issues or any of the things that typically lead men to getting locked up until he answered an ad for a pain management clinic looking for a doctor. It offered big money, so Scott took the job. But it didn't take long for him to realize he was working for a criminal enterprise especially considering he prescribed close to 1 million oxycodone pills to more than 4,400 patients he saw in just seven months. Now, to his credit, Becker never offered up any excuses or tried to shift blame or play victim. He stepped up as a man and took ownership of what he did. He pled guilty at his trial and he admitted to all of his crimes and his cooperation with prosecutors led them to recommend a much lighter sentence than the 15 years he was facing. Now, think about that. 15 years and he pled guilty. Now, I'm not sure many of us could have done that. I know I would have done anything to try to get out of 15 years in prison. But Becker admitted everything did his time. And what you're going to hear now are some of the hard lessons Becker learned going from a respected pediatrician to an incarcerated prisoner where they don't give a shit who you were on the outside. And he's going to tell you how it affected him, his family, and especially his three grown kids, two sons and a daughter, and how they had to deal with the shock and the shame. See, some men need a big kick in the ass to learn their lessons. And now Scott Becker is going to tell you about his. So Scott, you, you are, were in what you called a five and a half year adult timeout. And um, kind of an interesting way to put it. So I want to get into that a little bit. And I want to stress that this is, you know, it's a story not of tremendous failure or, you know, having to go to prison, but it's more of a being thrust into a situation of going deep into an exploration of yourself, right? Using what, what some people would call a, a tragedy or the worst possible thing that could happen to you and not falling into victim mode, not blaming, making excuses, but really owning it and having the time to go deep into yourself and the lessons that you learned because you were not, you didn't come from a life of crime. You were a professional, you're a doctor. So kind of tell me a little bit about that on, um, you know, uh, as much as you want to tell on how it happened. And then I just want to get deeper into the lessons that you learn. Well, the perspective of that adult timeout, I believe is important. And then I'll go back to the beginning. Sure. Uh, the perspective is when we sit on the ground, we really don't know what's going on three, four blocks away. But when you can go up 35,000 feet and then eventually in the space shuttle and see some of the views of the earth, you get a different perspective. When we have trauma, when we have something that's really impactful, 
we don't get the chance to disconnect from our realities, whether it be the rapid pace of our lives, whether it be the communication or technology worlds we live in, we don't get a chance to shut that all down at a later stage of our life. And I think that's where one of the most unique perspectives comes from. When you cut off all those who you know and love, no internet, and all you have is a limited amount of time on a telephone, you got to rewire your entire being for something that becomes more of a survival than how am I going to get over this tragedy? So it started as a native Miamian, which there's not many of us left. My brother and myself are probably it. And uh, born and raised in Miami. I was actually born at Jackson, which was one of the only hospitals at that time. And I was a quite a large baby. And we grew up in an upper middle class uh, childhood, lived on the only freshwater lake south of Orlando. We water skied seven days a week. I worked since I was 12 years old in my parents' businesses. I worked delivering pizza for six years from 17 through my first year in med school. And along the way, we were exposed to the thriving drug arena of South Florida, which is, you know, that was the lake where a lot of things entered and a lot of things flourished. And again, upper middle class lifestyle. We got to travel a lot while we were growing up. We had the benefit of seeing other cultures. I lived in South America for 10 summers. And along the way, I got to travel to Europe uh, for our Christmas trips. So I got to see what most would say is an accomplished affluent lifestyle. The difference in mine was that I was more of the handicapped uh, educated kid because my parents gave me that time to study without giving me the time to fail. Mm. I never had the time along the way to say, oh, go fix the sink. It's leaking. Go study was the words that I got and my brother or my dad or somebody else would go fix the sink. So not being able to learn your teenage rebellious years, what failure looks like, how to go out and tell, have the girl tell you, I don't want to go out with you was not part of my reality. So yeah. I was very late in developing, very shy. So very, very few challenges is what I'm hearing. None. Like, you know, None. just a lot of making things easy. Yeah, gold spoon. You know, again, you, you, you work delivering pizza for $12 an hour in the late 70s, early 80s. That was pretty serious money on, you know, owning your own car and, Along the way, like I said, having these benefits that most people would say you're either the spoiled child or you live in a very nice lifestyle. But I was handicapped from growing in the street of life, I will call it, and enjoying playing on the court of life is another analogy. And so not having that, I didn't see where my failures were coming from. I was zooming along in the course of life, numb literally to any kind of effect of what I was doing and where I was going. I would looking back on it, I would say selfish was more of a way of being, but it was more, I was just racing, 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 racing. Uh, some people said I started a sentence on Monday, I continued it on Tuesday and I finished it on Thursday because my thoughts were scattered, but yet I wasn't ADD, I was never on those medications, but again, study, 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 16, 18, 20 hour days. And, um, and then that led you into med school, right? Came out. Yep started yeah. in practice. And then how did that lead to, you know, the event uh, that, or how did that lead up to your uh, incarceration? Well, it, it was, uh, as I said, I, I was living at home on a lake, so I didn't even want to go anywhere else. So I ended up uh, training at the school that I was born at, ironically, Jackson Memorial. And in that I finished up in the late eighties and I went into private practice in emergency medicine. And I did both for 24 years. Again, no time for anything. And along the way, I transitioned into a field called functional medicine. Uh, some people call it hormone balancing, the aging uh, arena of medicine. And I started that in 2005. And I was doing that for a good four or five years. And at the time, I was behind on my debt. I was behind on my alimony. I'd gotten divorced back in 2003, four. And being behind on payments is not a good situation when you're a professional because they will yank your license, so to speak. Mm. And so we went in what they call a uh, updating um, meeting where they actually ask you what's going on and why are you behind 10, nine, 10 months. And at that time, she said, uh, you will no longer do this other field. You will stop what you're doing, go get a paycheck and start paying your responsibilities. And mm. once again, accountability and responsibility was not something I equated with life. My yeah. equation was work hard, do what you were trained to do, and everything will work out fine. Yeah. 
So a little bit of denial there on, on what was well, the reality, yeah, what was going on. Quite a bit. You know, mm-hmm. that, that idea of, you know, here we have three children in four years, and now all of a sudden it's, oh, by the way, you have to balance the checkbook and be responsible to pay the bills. I didn't even breathe to have time for that. Yeah. So where did you end up? Definitely. So along the way, we had this update meeting. And at that point, the uh, the magistrate said, no, you're going to stop what you're doing. You're going to go get a job. And I'm putting a court order in that if you don't report to me every week until you do, uh, I'm going to take your license and put you in jail. Hmm. Suspend your license, put you in jail. First time I ever heard the word jail. I mean, you know what? Excuse me? <laughs> jail for what? Being behind on a payment? Uh, yeah. And hmm. she was serious. And, and within 48 hours, I had to put some money down payment for that commitment. And being out of the general training, which I had, it took me a number of months to go and establish myself in a practice outside of a hospital, outside of insurances in this world of functional medicine. So it took me till February 2010. And I started working in a clinic, which allowed me to do what I was very good at, hormone balancing, weight loss, detox, um, asthma, autism, et cetera. And shortly after I started, they showed me a video and they said, this is our silent partner in the clinic. And it was one of the uh, worst of the people in the arena of what at that time was called pain pill. Mm-hmm. Right. The pill mills. Pain we had a lot of them. Pain management. South they Florida. Yeah. Down in South Florida since the early 2000s. Well, the gentleman was a silent partner in ours. And so I didn't know what to do. And I just heard, uh oh, uh, this is not good. And so I went a month later and I went to a uh, meeting of the state of Florida pain management. And I said, what do I do? He told me what to do. I went ahead and put the clinic in my name and I transferred patients. And in Florida, you can't just walk out of the office. It's called a felony, abandoning patient care. Mm. You're not able to do that. So I had to go find a clinic, put these in my name, and then basically decide how I wanted to manage them. And so I had to get out of this situation, which whatever guidance I had, um, I was scared, uh, Eric. I was scared of what my reality was, but because I was running so fast, I didn't pause to realize the gravity of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Because you'd never experienced that before, right? As you said in your early life, you never had to come up against a challenge like this. I wouldn't try. I wouldn't walk out a line in the when you were standing waiting for gym to start. I mean, I was not exactly what you call the crazy uh, troublemaker in school. Yeah. So now, early 2011, um, middle February, there was a national news bulletin, and they had uh, 25, 30 some clinics that they had at that time investigated, and they went in. And in walks four DEA agents, and they gave me what's called an emergency suspension order that put my license into suspension, and I was no longer able to write certain things. And because of that, I went into a paralyzed state for about five months. And when I say paralyzed state, my whole world crumbled. I literally was in a fetal position at the place I was living. I couldn't lift my head. I couldn't get out of a couch or a bed for five months. And then finally, I had to realize if I don't get myself one foot in front of another, nothing's going to change. So I started applying to jobs. I had an unrestricted medical license in the state of Florida. I just didn't have a DEA license. So at that point, I went ahead and applied to seven jobs. And the first thing I extended my hand, I said, this is what happened. This is where I'm at. I told them straightforward what I was doing. And all seven hired me on the spot for various lengths of time, all medical practices. About a year and a half later, I get what's called a target letter. And the target letter was basically saying the United States government Department of Justice is now taking you uh, uh, for these charges and you have to call us by November 1st of 2011, oh, excuse me, 2012, or else we can't be responsible for what's going to happen. Well, you've seen these midday dawn raids where they come into the house with Mm -hmm. SWAT teams and helicopters. Yeah, sure. Had I not called them, that's what I was going to have happen. Instead, I called them about 10 days after I got this letter went in for a meeting and eventually on January 7, 2014, I was sentenced to 50, excuse me, 65 months, lowered then to 57 months in a federal prison in 2014. And what, and, what, uh, was, what was the charge? What was the reason for it? Uh, the charge was um, money laundering and distribution of medication slash narcotics illicitly. And this was from the, the clinic, right? From the pill yeah. mill. Yeah. yeah. Now, if you did not know, money laundering is anything that has to do with earning $1 in an illegal manner. So it's not that you have to earn millions of dollars. If they find you earned $1 illegally, um, then again, that was the charge. Oh. So on January 7, 2014, I uh, said goodbye to my brother. 
my girlfriend at the time and my mom, my brother's wife, and I hugged them goodbye. And as soon as you're sentenced, they take you and put you in handcuffs and they put you behind the door and you are completely isolated from the world you once knew. Yeah. You're taken into a jail cell, which I stayed in for approximately 24 hours. And then I was moved to what they call the holding facility in downtown Miami, which is the equivalent of a bus station, people going in and out of courtrooms. And I stayed there from January 7th. And then on January 25th, I had the shock of my life, which uh, unless you've gone through this, you do not have a perspective for this either. I got an email uh, from my mom's boyfriend and she said, call your brother immediately. And he told me my mom died Oh man, on January 25th, 2014. And it was three weeks after I left. And for the better part of a year, I was as despondent, withdrawn, isolated. I blamed myself. I thought stress accelerated her death at 83 years old. And I just beat myself up really yeah. bad. And, and, you know, I mean, that's a deep feeling, um, Scott. And I want to go into like, what else before you even heard that when the sentencing happened? Because again, you know, you hadn't led a life of crime. This is not like, you know, you knew eventually this would catch up to you. This is something that kind of came, you know, I don't want to say really out of the blue, but it was unexpected and, you know, everything's stripped and taken from you. And what's the feeling at that point? I mean, I, I understand the feeling of mom passing and, and that is devastating, but before you had heard that, I mean, what's the feeling about, you know, yourself and what you had done and, and where you were now as a man? You go through spirals. The first one is letting myself down, letting my family down. Um, if you really want to be honest, you let your career, your colleagues, your profession down, you meaning me, of course, um, feeling of failure doesn't even begin to cut it. I think feeling of worthlessness is down there, feeling of complete um, and utter despair where you really do not have a way to see the future because you've spent 27 years in one career of your life or at least since two years old wanting to be in one career and it evaporates with the snap of a finger. Yeah. And at that point, you could not see the options, which I learned later on. You can teach, train, own, um, write anything to do with medicine. The only thing I can't do is physically see a patient and write a prescription unless I have another medical license. Mm. So you don't think about those things. At the time that it happened, I felt like everybody took all the clothes off me and I was standing there without any protection of anything for the world outside. Yeah. And I want to go deeper into that too, because, you know, you had said to me when we spoke before that you believe every man over 40 should go to federal prison for at least a year. <laughs> and at least one. No, actually, I think it should be two years because you can't appreciate what you have until you have two years away from them. All right. So two years. So I want to get into that because, you know, I, I you know, we kind of went into the, the initial shock of what happened. And now, you know, you're out five and a half years later. Well, now you've been out for how long now? Uh, it'd be two years. It'll be three years in September. Okay. So you've been out for a little bit, but you still have these lessons that you learned from in there and, and the things that you did. And, and one of the things I thought was interesting and what you just said, you're stripped there naked with no, uh, no protection. And one of the things we talked about was the minute you went into prison, your whole identity is stripped. Gone. Right. Everything's gone. So tell me about that a little bit and, and what you took from that and the, and the, the growth that you kind of were able to achieve based on having all of that stripped away. Well, a lot of people, especially in the professional world, whether it be accountant, especially in the medical field, they tend to identify with that white coat image mm -hmm. and the image of the consummate godlike feeling that you've got the answers all the time for everybody. And that's been the way they've been schooled. Sometimes you have your brow wiped with a sponge while you're operating. Sometimes you feel like, you know, you have somebody's life or heart in your literal hands. So you tend to go along life feeling holier than now and feeling like you are indefensible, you know, excuse me, um, indestructible. Mm -hmm. And the identity has nothing to do with who you are. And when that's removed and somebody says, inmate 03655159, you guess what? <laughs> They don't care what you did. They don't care where you came from. They don't care how old you are, how many kids you have until you've walked through certain lessons. It's like Boy Scouts. You go through the lessons of courage and honesty and commitment and loyalty to yourself and your God and your country. Well, guess what? 
In this case, you must one step at a time earn your word, your respect, your space, who you are as an individual, and nobody cares where you came from and what your career was. And they do actually not look um, positively upon people who are professionals because they said, oh my God, we can take this guy and beat him up or we can take advantage of him or he's gonna have a lot of money in his commissary account. Well, that was extinguished because the first two and a half years, I didn't even have a penny. Mm. Yeah. And you really have to learn how to survive when you don't have enough money to buy a $1 bag of tuna fish or have an ice cream on a 98 degree day being able to communicate with your family because you need funds in order to make those phone calls for the limited amount of time. So you really got to be surviving. This is not who you're going to be, where you're at. This is, you need to learn survival skills before you move anywhere. And the survival skills start with keeping your word, being as honest as you've ever been in your life. And if you've not been honest, there's some people who stay not being honest. And they keep lying to themselves. And that's why, unfortunately, 80% of inmates, federally anyway, will end up back within three years because they never decided to get brutally honest of where they are, what mistakes they made, and why they ended up where they're at. Honesty, integrity, personal space, hygiene, you must keep immaculate or they're going to think you're like Pigpen on Charlie Brown. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the basics. And when they find out very quickly, hey, psst. I heard that this guy was a doctor. They will test you. Are you an arrogant doctor who thinks you're better than everybody else? Or are you the kind of guy who's just nice and they want to get used to or know who you are? Fortunately, and I say very fortunately, I was the latter. I did not talk to a soul for three and a half years. This environment was completely foreign. As much as I've traveled, this was like me living on Mars, like the movie Martian. Yeah. And you know what I'm getting from this too, Scott, is it's, it's also, you didn't have, you talked about survival skills and, you know, you were talking about your upbringing. You didn't have, you know, these skills to even face these challenges. Now you're thrown into it, into this thing, and you've got to learn, Hey, what do I do here to overcome all of this? Eric, I was two inches behind a guy in line at the cafeteria. And this guy turns around and was ready to sock me because I was supposedly in his personal space. I've never dealt with that in my life and I didn't even know how to respond. So the first thing is, I am so sorry. I apologize. I just got here. I didn't know. You'll get by with that for a couple of weeks, maybe a month. But then over time, I mean, everybody's favorite, one of the top favorite movies of all time is Shawshank Redemption for a reason. The banker was kind of in my role, but guess what? (laughs) After a while, I became just like Morton Freeman, (laughs) Morgan Freeman, because I had to be the older guy who earned respect and who was looked upon not for being a doctor, but being inmate 03655159. So, you know, what it it comes to me too, is um, the doctor title that you had, it brings up that entitlement. Absolutely. It didn't matter what kind of man I was. I am a doctor and that's how you treat me. Now you had to earn that respect as a man rather than from the title itself. Yep. And I was in a camp. If I was in one of the higher security prisons, I mean the maximal or the medium or the low, they call them, and then the camp is below the low. If I was in the higher, then that manlyhood would have to be earned by either fighting for it, protecting somebody for it, or being protected. And that is for your life, not to play games. Mm -hmm. And then of course, many people may have seen some of the cable shows about gangs and so forth. You're not allowed to be in a gang and be in a camp. You could never have violence on your record and you couldn't have done a computer crime in order to be in a camp. So it's, it's, it, it's a safer environment, but there were fights, there was contraband, there was conflicts. Um, like I said, there's some people who ran their mouth all day long, and there's some people who you never heard from. Yeah. yeah you know, you had, you had mentioned to me, uh, and I think you may have even mentioned this a little bit earlier, about you know the, the limitations, you know, the cell phone, limited minutes. I mean, there's got to be... And there's a focus on, on where you put your time and spend your time, the limited amount of time that you've got with the phone and those kind of things. And you said this can either shut you down being in prison or it can be a blessing. So I want to look at that on, on really focusing on your time with the phone, focusing really in on what was important to you, because I'm, I'm assuming that's what led to the blessing. 
So the immediate thing you learn is those people who said they were friends disappear within days or weeks. They're gone. Friends from, from outside. Like, Anybody like who you would call an acquaintance or a friend are gone. Now, I had some professional colleagues who wrote letters to the judge. I had people who would send me letters of a professional nature, surgeons, et cetera. People who knew me as a person were there for support, but that's maybe that many, nothing else. Those you know is your family, your children, your brother or sister. And remember, you may have left them with a bad feeling. And I was not there for a lot of my children's lives. I was working so hard that I missed out on a lot of those growing up memories, except for the bigger ones. So not having been there, it wasn't that I had their respect. So for them, they were more ashamed, embarrassed, possibly not wanting anybody to know mm -hmm. what happened to their dad. And it was through the journey that I went on that one day at a time, I was able to earn that respect back. But when it comes back to your phone, which is a very important fundamental fact, again, I didn't have money for the first couple of years to any degree. So if I had an extra two, three dollars, then minutes were six cents a minute. You have 300 minutes a month. And that's your only communication with the human voice. What you learn from the telephone, you can tell on the tone in literally three seconds if somebody is sad, depressed, angry, happy, enjoying their day, or doesn't want to talk to you just from three, four seconds. You got to partition your minutes. So you think 300 minutes, four weeks, 75 minutes a week. So each call can be a max of 15 minutes. Well, <laughs> if you realize some people use seven, 10,000 minutes a month on average, yeah. try to limit yourself to 300 minutes and see how long you go until you're over it. And I'd say it's probably the first hour. So now you want to talk to those you love, significant others, if you have one, family, and that one person you may say once in a while, I want to talk to a friend. Well, <laughs> you'd be amazed at how you have to prioritize those minutes because five minutes is a lifetime. And the most poignant example of that was my last year in 2018. I got out in September of 2018. In, in that last year, my daughter um, had a birthday on in the middle of May. And unfortunately, I had some challenges. I was getting ready to start to journey home and I had to arrange things. And so I used up my, my minutes except for one minute. And I knew one thing, when it came to birthdays of my children, that was the ultimate priority. And so I did everything I could to not look at the phone booth. It's a building away from everything. I did everything I could not to look at the phone booth, try and go there thinking I can call anybody else and secure that minute like it was the gold at Fort Knox because that one minute was reserved for my daughter. And I knew one thing, in those 60 seconds, I was gonna tell her I loved her, I miss her, and happy birthday. Yeah, that's... And, um, probably the hardest thing I did in 57 months was keeping that one minute for that one day. Yeah, and it's a, that's such a powerful statement, Scott, because, you know, I, as you're telling this, I'm thinking about, you know, people that I just text and I just, you know, you don't even think about it. You're like, whatever. And, and, you know, you have these meetings that you think are so important, but to have that one minute save that, you know, a precious one minute for your daughter's birthday, I think is something that, you know, so many of us don't even look at. And that goes back to the adult timeout until you have been stripped. And I, let's just say disconnected, better word than stripped until you've been disconnected from everything and everybody you love you don't realize how much they love you. You don't realize how much you matter and make a difference in their lives being who you are instead of who you work as. And you certainly don't realize how precious time is. Yeah. Because it's ticking. And even though I'm, most people would say I'm closer to the finish line than I am in the midfield, it's a perspective. And that perspective, again, go back to the 35,000 feet of the space shuttle. If I walked in there letting time do me, meaning that I was just clicking the hours until I got out of there, there was no lessons every second of every day when a sun came up. There was no lessons every second when I worked at the gas station out where the Blue Angels fly on the Pensacola Naval Air Station. And a gentleman came up at nine o'clock in the morning. It was already almost 100 degrees out. And I gave him a glass of ice water. And he didn't say a word for about 20, 30 seconds. And then he says to me, that is the first time somebody's did something nice for me in over 15 years. 
Wow. And you just stop for a second and realize the perspective. I have saved children's lives in three seconds because I made the right decision at the right time with what I knew at the right place. Biggest and busiest ERs in Florida. And I know for a fact, because he came back the next day and asked me about my life and my kids, I knew that giving him that glass of water altered his life in a domino effect forever. And it's a tremendous feeling when you realize you don't need the white coat, you don't need the stethoscope, you don't need the office, the fancy cars, you don't need the house, you certainly don't need the toys and the bells and the whistles. You just need to realize that we're human beings and sometimes simple communication, whether it be silent, nonverbal, a smile, a thumbs up in the morning, a have a nice day when I took their trays from the dish room where they didn't even see my face, but I reached out underneath the window and I said, hey, Bob, have a nice day. Hey, Scotty, take care, man. You too. Send my best to the kids. Well, that happens after time, after you earn the trust, the respect, the boundaries, the personal space. And until you do, nobody wants to hear your story. They don't give a shit about your story. They don't care if you were the greatest, wealthiest, $100 billion guy. They want to know that you cared enough to take one second out of your day to say, hey, did you say hello? Did you say respectfully goodbye? Because it's all about respect, especially the manhood that you were talking about, mm -hmm. the, the king and the warrior and everything that's about the male image that is lacking. It's because it's stuck behind a fence in a prison somewhere. Yeah. And, and what I'm getting from you, and I appreciate you saying about the, you know, the warrior lover king, it's I'm looking at, you know, what you had to step into there was your warrior, which was, you know, understanding some of those, you know, courage, honesty, integrity, um, commitment, duty, honor, right? All the, the six of the sacred sure. seven and lover side, obviously love and, and appreciation into that respect that it's, you know, it, it's about being, what you were with the guy in the glass of water. It was about just honoring another human being, seeing another human being for being someone. And it's something that I think we don't do enough of because we're stuck in the title. I am a blank. Therefore, I don't have to do this and that. It's about, hey, you know, we're all men. We're all human. We're all in this together. And we, you know, respect and honor each other for that. So, you know, you talk about respect twice a year, the commissary is closed for inventory for several weeks, two, three, sometimes even four weeks. And I remember one time, again, stories, I could go into the thousands. Um, I remember one time I had this much oil, literally an inch left in my olive oil in my one container, which use oil for everything, cooking everything. I learned how to be a gourmet chef in a microwave. And uh, I had this much oil left and I saw the guy next to me who I just knew as an acquaintance, you live with 14 to 16 guys in a cube. This guy happened to be three or four cubes over and I did not know him at all. And I saw what he was doing and I handed him my olive oil because I knew commissary was closed and he wasn't able to get any. For the next three weeks, I had at least 10 people bring me dishes of food out of kindness for what I did for their friend. And this domino effect happens everywhere, whether it's a, t a seat in the TV room which is like sacred property. If you have a place to sit in the middle of a TV room and there's a ball game on or a soccer match or boxing, you, you couldn't buy that real estate if you wanted. But this mutual respect just by saying, hey, have a great day. Hey, how you doing? How's your mom? One other poignant example that I think is important. I found out a guy about my third year, I found out his mom died. I didn't know him from anywhere except that he came from Mississippi and they call him Sip. And I said, I called him in the hallway right in front of the office. And I said, hey, you have a minute? Sure. And remember, reputation sometimes goes around quicker than you can speak. And he says to me, what's up? And I said, I just heard your mom died last night. I don't know if anybody here can relate, but I can. And I got to tell you, it's got to be the greatest pain you've ever felt. He said, you have no idea. He says, I am so appreciative that you took time to come and tell me that. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Well, the following weekend, my kids happened to come up for a visit and I went and introduced them to this guy and he introduced his kids to my kids. You would have thought I was meeting an ambassador from the Vatican or as though he was being treated like royalty 
because I took time out of my life to introduce my family to him. Simple things like this don't happen in the real world where it means so much. It's like reverence. It's like that old medieval respect where just because you're a knight and you've got a sword, you have now earned the honor of being in this place. I got to tell you, I had no rule book. I had no manual to follow. I had no understanding. I literally had to start every day not knowing what to expect, locked down sometimes days on end because of a storm, a cold. In Miami, we were locked down 20 hours a day. You know, again, all kinds of things that nobody can relate unless you've been there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I want to bring something up because, you know, that that sure. that honor, that respect is so crucial, Scott. And I mean, and, you, and you've experienced and had to learn this. I don't want to say the hard way, but you learned it in a very visceral way, how important that is to us. And, you know, you, you brought up your family and, you know, I know your family well. Right? That's, you know, I mean, I knew your sons, Troy and Andrew, before I, I, I knew you. And uh, I met them while you were in prison. And they're two amazing, amazing young men and very close friends of mine. And they actually, they, they do help me out with this show. And, you know, being father figure, and, and again, I, because I know them so well, I want to talk about what it meant when you went away at first, the relationship between you and them as father and sons and where that was before. I know you said you were busy, you were working all the time, all that kind of stuff, but I want to know what happened after you went in and then now that you've been out and how, what's the arc of that relationship? Um, Troy had gone away to Washington uh, shortly after and I was not at his graduation from college. So that is a probably the only milestone of my children I was not at. And I feel a tremendous amount of regret for that. Moved to Washington for a couple of years. Kara was away. And so Andrew, after the first year or year, maybe two, three years, and I don't remember dates, but Andrew was the only one who came up another one or two times. So the way I can relate to it is Andrew put together something a couple of years ago that he says, in the beginning, I was scared of what happened to my dad and I was embarrassed and I was ashamed and I didn't want to talk about it and I didn't know how to respond to people. But then I saw the man who became accountable and responsible for his actions. And what I saw was he was real, raw, and for the first time, completely transparent with each of us at any time we were there. He was not distracted by looking at somebody on the other table. He was fully present and fully engaged in our experience when we were there. Because to me, this was like sacred time. Ain't nobody going to mess with my family, my time at that table for those eight hours each day that they were there. And so once again, it goes back to that disconnect where you reprioritize are you going to realize these are the only people who really will ever care unconditionally and loving forever? Or are you going to take advantage of them like I believe I did for too, too, way too long and thought they're always going to be there, they're always going to love me, but I did not really have a grasp of what that meant. Well, one step at a time, they saw that shedding of a skin, like a snake, shedding of that skin. This is what I did. This is the truth. This is exactly what happened. And they saw me earn their respect one step at a time, individually, and then as my children. And then slowly after the first or second year, I would introduce them to significant people, either in my cube, the guys I literally lived with, or literally I'd introduce them to some of the guards that I had become friends with because of the respect I earned. Well, all of a sudden they would say back to them, hey, <laughs> your dad is one of my favorite people at work or your dad is somebody I really look forward to meeting or seeing his children. Because now this hard cold avenue of corrections employees has now been touched by whom our family has been. Mm -hmm. So it's not just being in the federal prison system, it's now being an example of who you always wanna be. And for me, I got to be the man I never was, that simple. I got to completely go into the, the rafts of my mind, the darknesses of my mind, look at the right and the wrong, pack them up in a garbage bag for the first two years for sure, put them on the curbside, let the garbage man pick it away, 
cleanse my soul with just praying and meditating and watching sunrises, squirrels burying their nuts five seasons, holding a baby squirrel in my hands for about an hour, first time in my life when he fell out of the tree and then putting him back so he can be with his mom. And along that journey, you grow. Well, I grew from blank whiteness. I didn't grow from where I was. I didn't grow from who I was. I completely started from scratch. And to start from scratch to me is the greatest gift I ever gave myself, bar none, no exception. I believe it wasn't about redemption as much as it was about forgiveness. And it had to start with forgiving myself. Yeah. Because I made wrong choices at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. And the consequences I didn't look at as purgatory. I looked at it as, okay, I'm here. Now, what am I going to do here? Well, the first two and a half years, I taught a stress class in the wellness class for two and a half years to almost 250 inmates and seven staff. And my handout was sent to their families. So the ripple effect, I was doing the same kind of medicine, but for really good, honest reasons. I was sharing what I was blessed enough to know so it would help other lives. And you can't take that away from me. I didn't need a jacket to do that. I didn't need a title to do that. It was all they knew was Scott Becker did this and boom, off I went. Right. It was purposeful at that point. It was purpose and intention at that point, rather than, you know, this is what I do because I'm a doctor and pay me for it. You get in touch with that higher power, higher purpose, higher reason why I have gone through this for almost five and a half years is not because I need to regret everything I did. It's because I'm getting my mind, body, spirit, and soul ready for the next chapter, part two, as Troy says, of my life. Yeah. And part one may have been pretty good, but let me tell you, part two is warming up after two years. <laughs> well, you know, what I, I, what I like about what you're saying, Scott, you know, when you said you owned it all, kind of wrapped it up in the garbage bag, put it to the curb, it's, it's about ownership and being accountable for your own actions, right? It very easily could have gone into victim mode, blaming mode, denial. I didn't do this. I was, you know, uh, framed or it wasn't really my fault, but it really was about ownership. Most people do. Most people do exactly what you just said. And when they don't, and by the way, that was the first time in my life, I will say I was fully accountable for any action I've ever done ever. 54 years old, first time ever, 55 years old going in first time ever. So to transform and not even know what that meant and have to learn how to that was probably one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Accountable means if you say to somebody, I'll be there at two o'clock, you better be there at five to two or else you don't get a second chance. Right, right. And that comes down to the commitment. We're going to get into the sacred seven uh, in a, in a sure. couple minutes here, because I know you said you specifically wanted to go through them and, and, and what you learned about them while you were in. And I want to do that, but I want to touch on one thing real quick. I want to go sure. back to, to Troy and Andrew. So, you know, I know Troy was, was, was living in um, Seattle, you know, for, part of when you were away and Andrew was able to go up, but now that you've been out, how is the relationship now? Have you been able to, and I'm, I'm doing this specifically with your children, but, but even with people around you, the people that you love in your life, the ones, you know, the friends who stuck by you while you were away, do you still have, have you kept that sense of the importance of time, the importance of being present with them, the importance of, um, being real and honest with them for the time that you have, and how has that impacted the relationships? Wow. Um, I can't speak for their they would like to think. I can only see from my experience. Um, I failed a few times. I flipped into some of those old energized behaviors. I, I've been brought up and called out on it just to be bringing it to my awareness. And, and I just didn't realize it. I was having fun and excitement, and it just wasn't the where I wanted to be. I calm and methodical and a lot more reserved. And so, you know, I appreciate them for sharing that. Um, along that way of earning their respect, one step at a time, I believe from my experience, I have a stronger relationship now than I've had in their entire lives. I believe I have definitely more respect than I've ever had in their entire lives. Our communication is absolutely on a different level, beyond question. And, and I think it had to do with not only the transparency that I wanted to maintain, but more importantly, that I'm uh, I'm accountable as a responsible adult mature man, which I kind of ran away from for a large part of my life. You know, being in pediatrics, you kind of 
look at being like the child in a big room. Well, I never wanted to be the adult. Now I'm enjoying being the adult and earning that, that position that I won't even say I worked hard for it, that I just ran, I, I one step at a time became. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that relationship with them is, is much, much stronger than before. I'm very were. proud of it because I think it's only the beginning. I look forward to every time we chat, every time we get together. The boys were in town last week. We all went to dinner with my brother and his wife, my girlfriend. And let me tell you, to sit in a room with all of us and realize to be together at that point in time, magical, just magical. I could not have envisioned that three years ago. I, I, I cherished the possibility for those days. And now having been able to live it, I think the best word to describe my relationship with my kids is cherish it. I cherish it. Yeah. It is by far the most important thing in my life. And um, I took advantage of it for way too long. Yeah. Well, I can absolutely appreciate you saying that. And I think that's a lesson for all of us, right? To really take the time to appreciate the people that are around us. And I know for Eric, me, all they wanted was time. Yeah. They didn't need no fancy play times. They didn't need no fancy places. They just needed my time. And unfortunately, I was selfish with my time in helping others and not being in the moment with those who love me the most. And, and I would even add to that, Scott, that the time, it's the quality. So I'll say attention, Absolutely. quality of attention that you were giving them for the limited amount of time that you had, um, I think was the most important. It's, it's giving them, look, you had one minute with Kara on her birthday. So that attention that you paid to her and gave her for over those 60 seconds was immeasurable. And I realized over time, as those last years came through, I would purposefully call people and say, I've only got three minutes left or I only got five minutes left. So the quality of those three minutes cut away all the bullshit. Nobody had a story. Nobody wanted to hear the drama. All we wanted to do was say, how are you? How is things going? And can't wait to see you. I mean, the really important things that matter. I love you. You matter. I can't wait to be in your presence. That That is what happens in three minutes or one minute or 15 and it, 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 go ahead, try to keep yourself to 300 minutes with your family and see where your life goes. And see how much more quality attention you have for them in those few minutes that you spend. I think that could be one of the books that Troy's been wanting me to write, 300 minutes or bust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's an important lesson. So as we're wrapping this up, Scott, let's go through the, um, you know, sure. what we wanted to talk about on, on what you learned about the Sacred Seven Core Values. Sure. Um, and, and how you've been applying them how you did when you were in prison and, and how you are now, how important they are. So the first one being, you know, courage. Courage means being the best you are at what any, any given time, regardless of whether you see a six foot seven inch guy that may pound you to the ground, you must become a man at every moment of your day and your courage of who you are is required in all aspects of your life, family, friends, whatever you're doing in life, you have to have the courage to show up in life, courage to be in the state where you're at, whether it's prison, whether it's in the Broadway show, you have to have courage to be part of life, play ball on the court of life, have the courage to engage in life. I think that's important is, is that yeah. the courage is not what may or may not happen. It's the courage to just be part of the action, be part of the game. Right. Be bold enough to jump in. Absolutely. Yeah. So that comes to honesty. And I think that's Good. something that you had to. I think that's really one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, <laughs> honesty is so less stressful. I got to tell you, <laughs> to try and make up stories years ago would take more stress than I could handle. And when you realize that it's so much easier that if you hear a story from somebody in prison and it's the same story every time, you know, he's telling the truth. If the story changes, he can't remember the facts. And therefore, he's not being honest. So to me, the day I got there was the day I said, I'm going to be honest from this day forward. And honesty makes my life so much simpler. It absolutely puts things in right order. And it absolutely makes things flow. Just yeah, by being I, yeah, I could see where the honesty with your family, yeah. you know, with your kids about what, 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 what had happened, where you were, who you were becoming. You're not trying to be somebody you're not. And you're not trying to share what isn't really going on. You know, bullshit. You're telling exactly what's going on. Hey, I honestly am scared to death that this guy may hurt me tomorrow. Guess what? You better face that. But at least you're facing it with truth. Yeah. 
which brings us to integrity, which is you know, <laughs> living honesty. So I got to imagine integrity is important when you're in a prison situation. Integrity goes along with that earned respect. Mm -hmm. It becomes the character and the integrity of who you are walking the walk. If you're walking the walk of respect and keeping your word and being honest, then your integrity will show in everything you do. I don't care if you're working in a dishroom. For two and a half years, I pumped gas at Pensacola Air Station, and I had the integrity to treat everybody with respect, honesty, and compassion and empathy. And so my integrity was showing every day. Every day of the week was show on, on display. Yeah. And then the benefits of that? <laughs> the benefit of that is people know who you really are. And when you walk with integrity, your legacy goes after you. And people say, hey, man, <laughs> I met that guy for three years there. Or I heard about him for two years there. And your integrity comes before anything you could ever say. Yeah. Important to have that reputation as you're yeah. in, in, in an environment like you were. And then uh, commitment is the next one. And we kind of touched on this uh, a bit as well, but I want to hear some more on commitment. I think that goes hand in hand with keeping your word, keeping your commitments, keeping your priorities so that you know that you have cut, you have crossed the I's, dotted the T's, completed the sentences. And when the day is done, your commitment was to be the best you are and do the best in all your affairs. Yeah. And, I, and it brings up for me, the, you know, having those few minutes to be able to talk on the phone, you committed those minutes. <laughs> And you're committed to what you're going to say and do during that limited amount of time. And you've got to learn by the same token, if you've got a budget of X number of dollars for the month, you realize how you can only treat yourself to one ice cream for the whole month mm -hmm. or one tuna fish for a dollar for the whole month. And believe me, if you've ever seen somebody with joy, you should wait four years and then have your first strawberry taste as a 57 year old. <laughs> <laughs> and have you sit there in front of the food, which the kids would bring me and Odalis would bring me. And I'd sit in front of the food and I, it was like watching a display in medieval times on the big long tables. Yeah. Because to me, the greatest joy, as you know, from the Beckers is passion of food. Well, imagine getting food from a vending machine that became the best gourmet food you could ever imagine. Yeah. Just tasting it. Your taste buds were like satiated with just touching the taste bud. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I'm going to bring that up here in a minute when we get into honor and love, because that sure. sounds a lot like that too. And we got duty here. And, and for you being away for that time, what did you learn about duty? It was my duty to get my stuff together. It was my duty. I finally owned that it was my duty to become the man I always wanted to be that I didn't even know what that looked like. I never met myself. I never knew what I loved, liked, disliked. I always did what everybody else thought was cool. So I had to, for the first time, get to meet myself. So the duty I had was to become completely the person that I wanted to every single day from then on. And that duty was something I worked at extremely hard in all aspects every day I was there. Yeah. And then you know, we'll go back to honor and love now because we'll honor first. And you're talking about you know, the appreciation for the food and, and really seeing, you know, vending machine food as a gourmet meal and, and having that appreciation and honoring others, which, you know, to me is, a, is, is awe and wonder and respect and, and um, you know, letting people know. So tell me about honor when you were in. I think in order to even think of what honor is, first, you got to start with gratitude and vulnerability. And when you get vulnerable, and you stay grateful every single day that you do have the ability to leave your dorm and go outside and use a gym or walk a track in the open air on a cool day. When you're grateful, you're honoring and respecting and really appreciating everything around you. And I think honor is probably more to do with gratitude than anything else. In order to honor something, you have to be grateful for what you're freely given. When somebody gives me an ice cream because I didn't have money for three months in a row, I'll honor them as a human being. And I really, really appreciate them, but I'm so grateful for them. Yeah. And then you paid that forward, you know, when you were pumping gas and gave that guy the uh, glass of ice water. Oof. That was a way of honoring him as yeah. well. Yeah. You honor human beings. You honor them for who they are, not what they do, not what their identity is, not where they have their their lifestyles, you honor them because they're amazing people. And you really just have to listen, pay attention and be in that moment to find out how amazing they are. Yeah. And then that leads us obviously to love, which is the ultimate of the 
Sacred Seven core values. What did you learn about love being locked away for five and a half years? It's wrote about, it's misunderstood. They write more poetry. They've taken more photos about love. And it's a lot simpler than that. I, I think love is not only the magic that makes the world go round, but love is so absent these days. And it's so trampled on these days. And I believe people don't even start with something simple as loving themselves. Way before they find out if they can love in a relationship or in a family, they don't love themselves. And I think learning to love myself was the single greatest gift and the single greatest lesson that I walked out of there with on September 24th, 2018. That I got to, for the first time in my 57 months and 55 years, now 62 in April, I learned how to love myself through a journey of more darkness and more sadness, pain, tears, trauma, and unknown, I learned how to love myself. Yeah. And I would pay that price again and again and again to do it again. Amen. I mean, I can feel that. Absolutely can feel that. And you know, and I want to say, one of the things I'm taking from, from what you're saying, Scott, is, and, and what I'm feeling as, I, as I'm listening to this is, you know, it's amazing, but you don't have to go to prison to experience this. <laughs> I mean, for you, it was like, hey, we're going to take your ass and lock you up for you to learn these lessons, right? Because you were in, in such need of it. You created that having to be locked up to feel this, but you don't have to go to prison to experience. I, I, I suggest it's good for some, but as the phrase, my dear friend, uh, a pastor in Hallandale says, God doesn't have to grab you by the shoulders and shake you to get your attention. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. For me, it's like, okay, I'm not only going to pull the carpet out from under you, I'm going to just take you away 11 hours away from somebody or everything you know and love. And as I drove north on that bus that day in March of 2014, I figured, okay, this is not going to be that bad. And it got way, 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 way worse before I was able to just go inside and say, okay, this is where we're at. Just like Castaway with Tom Hanks. I, this is where I'm at. Now I have to take care of the basics stay present, stay quiet, stay in the moment. And then you find out about all those others who you're here with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something we can do every day without every having day. to be locked up on an 11 hour bus ride headed to prison to, to understand. I think technology has taken away from us so many values, especially the, the core seven. I think they've taken away from so many things we can be because we're moving too fast, trying to be in too many places and multitask for too many things that don't matter. They just don't matter. And if you can slow down and appreciate as many sun, sunsets and sunrises as Andrew has, and as many as I did while I was in Pensacola, um, you get it. You get that these seconds are ticking. The moments are ticking. You ain't getting them back. I don't care who you are. We don't know when it's gonna end. We don't have a choice in when it's gonna end. So we have to play every day, all out, full 100%. And don't think you have a given 80, 90, 100 years because that's not even written. There's so much here from Scott, so much to take away. Things like earning respect every day from the men around you, not, not being entitled to respect because of your career or position, but earning it daily. It's about staying present, staying in the moment, living the sacred seven core values every day because if you don't, you may not make it to the next day. And this is a reality so many don't experience and instead take everything they have for granted. So for me, I have a ton of gratitude to be able to learn from Scott's experience without having to go through it myself, which is why I appreciate Scott Becker coming on and I want to thank him for being real and being open and being honest and telling his story. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you, to be your brother by your side on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face like, how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? 
You can find the Professional Book Nerds Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!